What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we're hearing from Peter Frankopan, Professor of Global History at Oxford University and author of two seminal books, which you may know, The Silk Roads and its follow-up, The New Silk Roads. Well, he joined historian and writer Simon Seabag Montefiore at the Cliveden Literary Festival recently to reflect on the global dynamics that define our era and the shifts that perhaps suggest the beginnings of a new one. Here's Simon Seabag Montefiore with more. Peter, you've played a big role with your Silk Roads books, two books, of really kind of expanding history. Um, you know, when we were growing up, history was really just about sort of the Tudors and the Romans and Hitler. And you've helped expand it to the East just at the moment that the East is perceived as a rising. So let me start with you yourself. Um, how did you, as a little boy, how did you discover history and what made you want to, to write history? Gosh, that's, that's a question a shrink would ask. I don't know. I'm, 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 a, I'm a psychiatrist. My father was a psychiatrist, so you'll have to forgive uh, me. Gosh, well, when we came on, I thought, I thought it was the, another one bites the dust was the soundtrack, so I'm pleased yes. that that's not what I'm up for. It's a really good question. So I, I, I don't know is the answer, but I, what I do remember is that as a boy, one of the few programs that we always had to watch at home was John Craven's Newsround. And um, I remember watching John Craver's news round and all the stuff that was on the news was about Soviet missile deployment in East Germany, it was about the PLO, it was about Israel, it was about revolution in Iran, it was about um, so-called Vietnamese boat people, it was about the end of the Khmer Rouge in, in 1979, 1980, and, you know, and then Ethiopia in the mid-80s. But I just remember sitting, I mean, I loved history and I love those stories about um, Henry VIII and the First and Second World War and, and there's a lot to learn, but I could never quite understand why what I was learning in the classroom had absolutely no relation to what seemed to be important in the news and important in the world. And particularly, I think, the thing that really, I think, it both excited me and I was scared about it, if you want to talk about the end of the world, was that, you know, we grew up in a world where we were sh certain that nuclear war would kill us all. It was just a question of when that would happen. There was bound to be either a miscalculation or an unwarranted escalation between the US and the USSR, and that someone was going to fire a, a nuclear device and that we were doomed. So it wasn't quite the program that I was guaranteed to die before we were old and, and happy or unhappy, but that, that very polarized world was something that I really wanted to understand why, you know, and as you, a great historian of Russian history, you know, if you, once, once you start to look at different peoples in different ways and really immerse yourself, 
you just get a very different set of questions. So, I mean, even when I was a teenage boy, I was obsessed by Russian literature. Um, I was very lucky that was a school where I could learn Russian, and then even luckier that my Russian teacher had been in naval intelligence and had taught himself Arabic. So he taught four of us Arabic in a year up to kind of A-level standards. So by the time I went to university, you know, I was, in fact, I went there, I studied Russian for my part one, uh, because I, was, I, I just wanted to find out about these other parts of the world. I, I didn't imagine it would come together and the, the, trying to say maybe we should write about history that's not just about other people, but maybe we should write about history that is, explains how we're connected all to these kinds of... Um, and, and how other people see us is the key, is well, the key, isn't no that idea. the key challenge, we've isn't got it? absolutely no idea. Yeah. I mean, do you think one of the interesting things about history is like, when people look the same, but in fact, we've, it's the realization that we actually have no idea what was going on in their minds at that time. And that's, of course, that's, our, that's, that's the challenge of history, isn't it? Well, so I just, I was, I've just been in Athens to do something and, um, and so I'm working on sort of lot, um, Greece and, and its orientation eastwards is something that I've worked on for a long time. And as a, Byzantine, a Byzantinist at Oxford, that's, that's part of my day job. And uh, I came across Macaulay writing in the early 19th century saying that the single most important event in English history was the Battle of Marathon, mm. which is quite something. I mean, you think we say battle of dot, dot, dot. You, a lot of people would say Hastings, right? Yeah. I guess some people might vote for Bosworth, yeah. maybe Dunkirk. Um, but the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC between the Greeks and the Persians, that somehow the English think this is fundamental to the English way of, of how we've conceptualized the world. And I think that those conceptualizations are really important. And you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the contemporary world too. But I think that that lack of knowledge mm. about other parts of the world is profound. And it's both dangerous because we don't understand the world, but it's also reckless that young people are brought up learning the same stuff that you and I did for O-level and A-level, you know, where there's no texture about what the rest of the world is going on. And when we do open up and look at other people, we look at chapters that self-edit. You know, we look at the slave trade, which yeah. is, sets up, we should only look at Africa within a context of how Europeans engaged and in a negative way, which we'll talk about this evening. But, you know, other parts of the world, um, you know, we can't, we, 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 it's like shooting in the dark. And, and I think we should do much, much better. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that you was just you just mentioned was about you know the end times and the, the and, you're, and you're of course you're a Byzantine um, expert. I mean, why is it do you think that throughout human history, certainly since the Christian era, we are always convinced the world is about to end? I mean, whether it was sort of chiliastic millenarianism, all those yeah. sort of uh, apocalyptic feelings. What is it about human nature? And this must this runs through all your all your work, in fact, but especially especially Byzantium, is that feeling that. We think it's absolutely unique at the moment because for all sorts of crazy reasons, the supply chain, the pandemic, China's super hypersonic um, weaponry, whatever, mm. Donald Trump, we think the world is ending. Yeah. Actually, people have always, thought, you mentioned the Cold yeah. War, we always yeah. expected the nuclear Why is that, do you think? It's, a, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not just a Christian thing. I mean, the Indic religions, yeah. Mesopotamian, and, you know, Akkadian, Sumerian, and Babylonian, there's, it's, it's all about the end of a cycle, typically of a cycle of either reincarnation or of kind of, you know, your time is limited, you're doomed. Yeah. And therefore, it's a profoundly important question from a human point of view, you know, what happens to us afterwards? So I suppose on, on one level, those ideas that doom is going to become accelerated is a source of fascination and fear. If you were taking a structural approach, you'd say people who exploit that are the priesthood. Mm. 
and it doesn't have to be a priesthood to do with faith. You know, the priesthood today who preaching catastrophe, Thucydides traps. You know, the the, the confrontation of China and uh, and the United States. You know, there, there are lots of them in the State Department and then the Department of Defense in in Washington who talk like priests and they have powers of priests because their position rests on an authority to make sense of the world. So I think it, it's two things. It's partly that we are fascinated and fearful about things coming to an end, but I think that there's also a way in which that that power gets exploited by the creation of structures that enable people to control society. You know, I think it's a very important element. And that, that, that runs across the Quranic tradition, that runs across the Judaic traditions, you know, and the importance of rabbis as not just intellectual scholars, but as guides and priests of, in, in, in all religions. So I think it's, there is something fundamental in us as human beings in, in trying to engage with what that disaster looked like, and particularly natural disaster, because famine and floods and climatic events are all, are all sort of part of that cycle where either God is punishing us or we're not responding well enough to the challenges in front of us and that there are consequences because we have these terrible scenes that follow. But one of the, I mean, you, you touched on that. I mean, we live in an age now which seems completely secular, but in fact, every age has an orthodoxy and a credo and, and a priesthood. Um, you mentioned people, someone in the, in the State Department, but also um, there's a machinery today of, of thought that is, that is an orthodoxy. And it's really the job of the job of historians to to both reflect that and react against it, isn't it? Yeah, although we're priests of our own, mm. you know, with the priests, behold what I think yeah. we should be reading about, yeah. and here's why we should learn about Jerusalem mm. or about the Silk Road. So you know, I think one has to take that all with a slight pinch of salt. And the, the difference is that you know you have to buy my books rather than I have a budget of eight hundred and sixty billion dollars a year, which you have if you're in the Department of Defense. Yeah, and so I think that the, the, there is the, that that idea about what should we control. So, I mean, it's one of the interesting ex, you know responses, I guess, to Silk Road having been so successful, is that. People say, well, what the, you know, how come we didn't do this before and look at the world that's joined up? And now all history should be like this. Now you can't write a book that doesn't throw in. So it's got lots of people trawling through Wikipedia to find out who are the, you know, who are the ambassadors, mm. rephrase it and chop it up a little bit and then throw them into a story of you know, whichever period you want. So I think, I think that now the pressure is to globalize everything and editors saying to writers, you, know, you can't write just about an English person writing in England. You've got to somehow connect that to events all over the world. So it's highly faddish. And in fact, it then gets watered down because the key thing is not the gathering information it's it's how do you analyze i mean yeah. you know how do you link more it? than anyone yeah. it's, it's it's reading these complicated sources how do you understand the transmission the authorship what are the kind of questions you should ask as a as a professional I mean, a professional skill set of a historian learning how to read is one of the key things you know and why the literature festival like this is so important you know it's not the Cliveden history festival because it's the writing element that's the crucial thing. Handling complex literary materials requires sophistication of readership. And that's a skill we undersell to historians in particular, because we think, well, people a thousand years ago were all credulous. They all believed in God. They did what monks and priests told them to do, rather than thinking, were they really that stupid and we're so smart today? Or maybe people were, well, maybe we're overshaped by what survives in the literature, and that's more important. And again, you know, your stuff on Jerusalem tackles that so well about you can't just just um, believe everything you read, you know, but okay. these stories are being told for a reason. Yeah. And, and the stories matter too. Right. The, the lies matter as much as the truth, Absolutely. don't they? I mean, that's yeah. part of it. Let's, let's move on to China, because we're all fascinated by China. Yeah. Um, just to come at it from different ways. But first of all, I mean, the British Empire lasted 300 years-ish. I mean, yeah. the, the, the American century has been a century. I mean, I mean, how long can China stay on top? just got there. 
Um, well, you know, if there's a if there's a American warship gets targeted while we're talking, um, it might not last till this afternoon. Yeah. yeah. So we might then have the end times during the next hour. It could be yeah. in real time yeah. as it happens yeah. right now. Yeah. So I think one one can't one can't model fragility, right? On a kind of you know, you know, Franz Ferdinand being shot on the streets of Sarajevo. If you'd said soon after that that we're going to have a world in the next four years where every single European country, which at that time more or less every single one had an empire, every single one is going to lose it in the course of the next four years. Britain is going to go from being the biggest creditor nation in the world to being the biggest debtor nation in the course of uh, four years. No one would believe you. So single sort of black swan or fragility events are hard to think through what, how, those, how those play out. So what might happen is, is you know, the, the, it's, the variables are almost unlimited. I think what's more more sobering is that you know we think of China as being on top, but you know China is not a rich country. It's got an enormous economy on a sort of PPP basis. It's bigger than the U.S., but you know the average income in China is about ten thousand dollars, which is a kind of getting towards the middle of middle middle developed countries. So we get thrown by seeing Bentleys in Shanghai and you know wonderful Chanel stores in China. But you know there are there are millions. I think we're under fire from China now. <laughs> But you know, China still is in the process of, of growing. And if you, you take, one could take lots of different views. And in fact, I've been on an aircraft carrier this week talking about exactly how one tries to assess what kind of threat uh, China poses and what kind of military, strategic, and you know, all the joining all the dots, how one tries to understand what we're looking at. But you know, one of the things I suppose is that China is, is going through an adolescence of having quite clumsy muscles. It sort of doesn't quite know what it wants. It knows it doesn't want to be told what to do by the grown-ups in the room or by the United States or by the UK um, telling to behave more like us. They, so there's a bit of there's a bit of push in the system and equally we're not quite clear what it is that we want China to do. So is the problem that we don't want China to grow or we but we don't want China to behave in the way that they're behaving, and in which case, which bits? And you know, there are lot, lots of these kinds of elements. I think that we have to think carefully about. You know, when I, I started writing about Uyghurs and Xinjiang and internment camps four years ago, and there was no interest at all across politicians, across media, across anything, until about a year ago, where suddenly it became quite a visible story mm -hmm. in the press. And we talked a lot about. And there's a lot about saying maybe we should sanction China, boycott the Olympic Games, and so on. But you know, even in the UK, our imports from Xinjiang went up by 190% last year. Right. So the cotton that's being made and the Nike trainers that have been made in very questionable humanitarian conditions, if not worse, you know, we say one thing and we do another. So in terms of China, its velocity, what's it going to try to do? Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a huge big question. Uh, but yeah. the, the, the more important one, I guess, from our point of view, is how does that affect us? Is China getting richer and stronger? I mean, the Prime Minister of Singapore put it very well. He said, "People tell me I should be worried about China," and the way I see it is, the richer China gets more good for them and more good for us. Mm. So you know, I think we've we've got to work through what are the strategic stress points, of which there are lots, but we don't evaluate properly because our base knowledge is. I'd say somewhere between zero and minimal. Yeah, I mean, isn't one of the problems though that, and is that China's in a way is slowed down, and and the president has has aspired to this massive sort of world world role now, and yet, you know, there's been a slowdown, and now resistance is beginning to China from America, obviously, and 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 to a certain extent Europe, and. How is he going to meet those aspirations? Is that going to put a danger? Is that the real danger that China isn't expanding as quickly as it was, but but could now be be experiencing resistance for the first time, having sort of 
having since 1972 been able to sort of, in partnership with America, expand exactly as it wishes, trade where it wishes, isn't the problem now that China isn't, is, is suddenly challenged and therefore might, may become dangerous? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, I'm not, not quite sure what to pick out there. I mean, yes, a lot depends what you think it is that China's doing. When you talk about um, being, slowing down, I mean, you know, we over-insert ourselves in the West into what we think Chinese strategic thinking is. Right? We, we, we assume that most decisions are based around reactions to what goes on in the world outside. But you know, China on its own is, is somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4 billion people the population of friend of ours, Dick Smith at, um, at Cambridge University, who's professor of demographics, you know, reminds us that, that China's population might be wrong by between 10 and 15 percent, right? So, Either yeah. plus or minus. Yeah, you know, we're doing census, which is a lot of people. It's a lot of people, right? Yeah. So we, we sort of we, there, there are lots of things. I mean, I think that there, there's strategy and strategic planning on it, which has a military and a geopolitical. Um, element to it, and then there's economic growth, where in a globalized system, you know, China is part of our supply chains. I mean, for, for example, of the 200 suppliers that Apple has, 88% of them are in Asia, and about half of those are in China. So to say, well, let's decouple, which is there's a lot of noise right now in Washington about supply chains, the congestion in ports, the sort of breakdown of you know, the, the things that are going to get much, much worse in the coming weeks and months, uh, that maybe we should reshore and, and Apple should be building their iPhones in Texas, which, which is, you know, great, but it takes, you know, takes years. I mean, it takes, it takes, 10 years well, it takes, us, tw it takes us 25 years to build a nuclear reactor. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's what we're planning. And do you think, well, that's great we can have, if we're going to have nuclear energy, that, that we'll have that by 2050 in time for the next whatever Olympics is going to be then. But... You know, there, there are. If you don't plan ahead, it's very difficult, and it's expensive to put things in place because you're you're always second guessing. So, I, th I think that you know. So, I, I, some of my best friends are work on Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic. Um, one of the wonderful mm -hmm. degrees at Cambridge, but there are more students today at Cambridge studying Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic than there are studying Chinese. Right, so right. I don't want to have any funding cut from my colleagues working on Anglo-Saxon, Northern Celtic. Yeah. But it would tell me that we are completely strategically, economically, politically, militarily, across the board, completely unprepared to make any sensible kind of decision about China, whether it's about the history, whether it's about business, whether it's about supply chains. You know, if you're a young person to say, should I go and work in Shanghai tomorrow? Should I go and invest in real estate in whatever? You know, it's might as well blindfold yourself and throw a dart at a, a donkey's bottom. And, and, and that, that's terrifying because we're quite thoughtful about how we think about other things. We're quite thoughtful about thrashing out Brexit. And we spent five years obsessed just on fish and you know all the rest of it, yeah. which is I guess, it is not unimportant, but in the grand scheme of the sweep of history, yeah. Brexit is genuinely not even a footnote compared to the stuff that is going on in the world that is significantly more important. And it's not just a China story. That story is places that you know as well, like Pakistan and India, which have combined population of one and a half billion. When you start to cluster up the countries that I work on, getting through now into Southeast Asia as well, you know, you're 70% of the world's population live yeah. east of Istanbul. Add in West Africa, that is the other significant region we should be focusing on. And we're well above 75%. And so it's great that we admire ourselves in the mirror and think very hard about history, but maybe we need to also move beyond some well, of that kind I, of history yeah, that we look at. And, and I, I agree with that. That's why I'm, I'm just jumping on about five things that you're saying there. One of them is, um, you know, we've replaced 
being obsessed with the sort of Tudors, talking about history a little bit and yeah. study of history. I mean, we, you know, we, we were all brought up only studying the Tudors and you know, and told, I mean, told that that we were we were we, we deserved enormous um, reverence for abolishing the slave trade, for example, without ever really telling us that we were running the slave trade. Yeah. Um, but now we're absolutely obsessed with the British Empire, good and bad, and which is a new sort of. Anglo-centricity, Eurocentricity, when we still haven't, we're, so we're still talking about England, basically. Exactly. So we really should be yeah. talking about. So how no, how do we cope with fine. that? With what's I think happening? That's at absolutely the moment? fine. No, I think it's the, the more the better. The more mm. great books, you know, the, the, the you know the roster of people speaking this weekend. You know, it's the it's the it's like being the kind of classic. It's like the best of the nineteen eighties. One of those albums where everyone is a winner. You know, everybody walking around here today, they're all geniuses, and the, what they're working on, it's you know, books of profound authority with great detailed knowledge, and imparted in a way that that people want to read, you know, which is not necessarily how all academic history gets written. But you know, I think it's, it's great that people work on whatever topics they want rather than prescribing it. I think it's that, it's that in, in, from a starting point, you can't engage with other parts of the world if you don't have any language skills. Mm. And that is the single greatest weak point. You know, if you can't speak any other language other than English and you're only dealing with I mean, I remember spending some time in, in Bulgaria. I, would, I went to do a PhD. I was good on languages. And I had quite an old school PhD supervisor who in my first year, he said, you know, it went through the language I spoke. And I thought, when I get to Swedish and Danish, he's going to be impressed. He wasn't. And then he said, you know, it's great. How, you know, how, your Russian's obviously good. Uh, do you, have you got Bulgarian? So I said, no. He said, well, you won't find that very hard because it's sort of, it's the kind like of closest Russian. to old yeah. church Slavonic. And he said, well, you should go to Bulgaria and pick it up and, and spent a couple of weeks in Romania and picked that up as well. And, and I remember going back to my college, you know, to thinking, okay, well, fair enough, but it's gonna be quite a lonely trip because I'm pretty sure none of my friends are gonna to wanna to come with me to, you know, to spend time in the, although it's great, you know. Anyway. Did you go to Bulgaria? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. And I worked out that the best way to do it was to get a sleeper from Sofia through to the Black Sea coast, which cost me two pounds 50 in a first class compartment on my own, crisp linen sheets, just like it, not quite as nice as Clifton, but almost. And, yeah, I'm not sure Clifton then, would be that delighted have a, have a, <laughs> Bulgaria. The railways, and trust me, anyway, yeah. and then I'd have a day looking at archaeological <laughs> sites on the Black Sea in places like Varna and Burgas, and then we'd take the overnight train back to Sofia and spend a day in the mountains, and I did that for two or three weeks, and you know, the first evening I sat there with my blank page, started writing up Bulgarian vocab and grammar and etc. and some guy came over and was very chatty, you know, wanted to talk, had a beer with me. And he said, why the hell are you learning this? I said, I'm so interested in the early history of the first Bulgarian empire. Everyone here knows that the first Bulgarian empire is more exciting than the second Bulgarian empire. Everyone. Um, because they had two, right? We only had one in Britain. Yeah. Although yeah. apparently, Theresa May, at her first press conference when she became prime minister, she said Britain's brightest days lie ahead of us, which yeah. is a historian I find quite interesting because we, we, we had quite a bright 300 years. We did years quite we well for about 300 years, didn't we? So, you know, who knows mm. if that meant we were bringing back some slavery in Cornwall. But so, so do you think sort of, so just talking about sort of this, that sort of attitude, this so sort of Theresa May, skills. Oh, just, sorry, going, yeah, yeah, just yeah. going back to Theresa May, who we almost forgotten was once prime minister of this country. But I mean, do, do you, I mean, the sort of the offer of post-Brexit Britain reconquering re the world globally um, looks a little optimistic at the moment, doesn't it? I, I wouldn't bet on it. I mean, mm. but there, there, but there, having said that, the, you know, the, the more in, I guess if one washes out the politics, and everyone here will have 52% well, and 48 will have a different view on that, and that's not my job to reheat any of those kind of arguments. But you know, one could take a, a step back and go. 
you know, this, this little rock in the North Atlantic for the last few hundred years has significantly outperformed and at the expense of other people's lives. No question about that when it came to transatlantic. But, you know, in today's world, all built on the legacy of that, you know, no, no harm in reminding. But, you know, we significantly outperform at universities. We significantly outperform in specific sectors, including finance. You know, we had a great response to the pandemic. Well, fantastic Kate Bingham, if she's here. I know she's here in Clifton at the moment. You know, we, you're welcome, AstraZeneca, that's from my university. Uh, that's why many of the people will be here today. You know, there are lots of things we do incredibly well, and we've got to try and work out why that is and, and what our place is. And part of the call for Global Britain, and I've been involved in the integrated review and some of the kind of ideas around that has been, you know, what is our place in a world that is changing? And, um, you know, quite a good line is that in a world of carnivores, it's quite dangerous to be vegetarian, mm. which is what the world looks like right now. You know, China, other states, you know, you have the capabilities in places like Qatar, UAE, um, not about, you know, forget about places like Iran. You know, Iran has, a, has 3% of the budget of the US and has basically shaped and dictated mm. the falls of American presidencies for the last 60 years with almost no spend. You know, Iran is still a problem. Russia, as you know very well, with very limited resources and economy that's not big, dysfunctional state, is still a top table player. And you know, these competitors that we're dealing with don't behave, think the same way we do. Yeah. So Britain's got to think quite hard about how do we fit in and are we a part of the sort of flotsam in the water? Are we able to influence and shape? And if so, how do we pick our battles? And that's what the British did very well, yeah. strategically work out what it is we needed to do. And so running back to, to, to just other languages, so, what, so one of the problems, this guy in Bulgaria, it's a long story back to that. He said to me, what the hell are you doing sitting here learning Bulgarian? He said, if I was sitting in England saying, I'm going to write the definitive book about the Battle of Hastings, wouldn't you think it's quite odd for a Bulgarian to do that? So why are you some English guy sitting here telling me about my history? But I think that if you don't teach those kind of skills and the technical skills for history today are not just languages, it's about understanding um, statistic and statistical modeling. And a lot of science. A lot of science. Yeah. A, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of genomic stuff mm. is the kind of real breakthrough area. And you can't just hop on and read what other people have written and just put it in a footnote. You've got to understand what are the, what are the, what are the parameters where you might be wrong about movements of people, li 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 linguistics. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, Madagascan languages are all based on Malay, right? Mm. And when someone says that, you go, great, but what, what bits aren't? How did it get there? How did it change? How did it evolve? And I think that those, those hard skills require investment. And so the big problem in this country is we've got the private sector that can afford to fund those kinds of investments, although very few young people take them. They'll pick German and French rather than things that look harder. And we could calibrate that quite, quite, quite easily. I mean, my view is if you want to study Arabic, Chinese, Russian at university, government give you a free scholarship for it. Yeah. And if you want to study the French Revolution, maybe you don't. Or There are all sorts of ways in which you can, with a little nudge, can do quite a lot to start to think that, what is it an 18-year-old that we have, both of us, what should they know about? And they should know something about AI. They should know about machine learning. They should know about robotics, about genomics, linguistics. They should know about how this is going to influence and change the way that we look at the world around us rather than only knowing how many wives Henry VIII had, or whether, in fact, we've overrated that Henry VIII was not just a bad husband, but also a shit king, mm. which is the kind of the new orthodoxy, yeah. which, is, which is great. So I don't want to imp input into what anybody else writes and works about, but I think that those skills gaps and skills shortages and skills reward is a problem. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why young women don't go into science, you know, because the, the bar for academic achievement, places at universities is much, much lower. So last year, only 1,500 young girls or girls did, did computer science GCSE mm. because it's perceived as being much riskier and harder to get into the small number of places that offer that as a university degree. So much 
much easier to do history or Latin or geography because loads more people do it. You're more likely to get a good grade. You're more likely to get to a good university. You're more likely to get at least a 2-1. And you're more likely to therefore get a good job. And, and that's not how a functional, intelligent society should work. You should work out how do you reward and encourage people to do more adventurous things, and, and particularly with skills gaps in sciences and with gender. Uh, and with, that goes across all diversities too, into, of course, ethnicities too. You know, we're, 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 we run this place, it looks like the 19th century rather than the 21st. Yeah, yeah. And do you think, I mean, just you talked about Iran there, just to go to, to change from, from academe or, and, and, and technology to sort of the way the world is run. You get the example of Iran, it's kind of run around everybody because, it, because of sort of consistent, a consistent world, world view in its region. Um, how do um, democracies which change government or change policy continually every five years or every six years compete with these kind of reheated empires with consistent re leadership, you know, for 20 or 30 years? like sort of China, Turkey, Iran, Russia. How do, how do we analyze the leadership of those places, those kind of new, new, reheated old empires, really, in the Near East, which are very much in your, in your territory? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's interesting. What do you mean by reheated? How, I, I mean that they're, they're, um, they're very, first of all, they're conservative states, aren't they? I mean, there's a, their attitude to the world is conservative. Um, and obviously, they, in, internally, they want to freeze everything as much, you know, to, to, to maintain that, you know, Putin or Erdogan wants to keep their leadership um, as strong as possible. Um, so I think the conservatism is, is probably, is, is possibly a red herring mm. insofar as what, what it's really about is regime stability and regime survival. Yeah. The views that help enforce that or protect as the priesthood or, uh, it, it's almost, it almost doesn't matter. You know, if the Iranian leadership tomorrow said everyone has to wear jeans and wear t-shirts, otherwise you're going to get locked up in prison. It's all the same process that what, what the beliefs are in a way are less important than how small groups of people retain power and don't let anybody else in. How do you yeah. shut people out? And, I think one of the things we've struggled with in this kind of world that we think we understood quite well and then suddenly about three years ago we hit the panic button going oh my god China suddenly in our rearview mirror we don't know where it came from it's a massive threat let's deal with it we haven't realized that in the last 25 years democracy has been re in retreat globally and quite profoundly mm. so the democracy index um, in the last 15 years democracy has gone backwards every single year for the last decade and a half and that's partly because non-democratic systems have been quite good at doing low-hanging reform of cleaning out the judiciary, being quite good at going after corruption because it suits leaderships too, quite good at professionalizing how do you encourage digital technology without fragility, and partly because it's quite easy to say that, well, we haven't managed that process in democracies well. You know, we've got real challenges about freedoms of speech, not just on university campuses, but in kind of the kind of discussions we have with each other. You know, when you see the, the um, the Capitol Hill on the 6th of January, what happened there. Um, you know, it's pretty hard in, in most regimes, and I don't just mean Iran or China, but in most states around the world to say, if this is the challenge, if this is the, the result of what happens if people can connect with each other on digital platforms and can they can almost bring down the government. And the single scariest element about that day was not just the scenes on, on Capitol Hill and so on, it was the fact that um, Mike Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs, rang his Chinese opposite number and said, I will ring you and warn you if I'm told to launch. Yeah. And, and that stuff, so I mean, you're right. Amazing China, moment. That was an amazing moment, wasn't and, it? And, and possibly he was stitched up by Bob Woodward. Mm. 
Um, but no, there's been no denial from the US military yeah. that, that those kind of fragilities. So we look like we're highly unstable. Brexit, you know, apart from sucking all the air out of the system, mm. left us singularly unprepared to deal with things at the worst possible moment. You know, and in terms of where we are now with a with a pandemic to deal with too, having compression on supply chains, on the, on the economics, the energy insufficiencies, and so on. So I think that it's it's partly that authoritarian and unprogressive regimes have worked out how to retain power and to do it in a way that has uplifted the general population standards of living. Most people in the world, it's slightly un unfashionable thing to say, most people in the world can live under whatever kind of conditions as long as there is a, a semblance of meritocracy, as long as you have some form of religious and freedom of expression, but that doesn't have to be a profound one, but above all that your standards of living go up. And if you can keep delivering economic growth and more hospitals get built, new roads, and you think that your kids will have a better life than you've had, then it's quite a logical to thing to keep lending your, well, probably not your vote, but mm. lending support to the people in charge. And, you know, one of the things in China, for example, is the question about whether there is any internal criticism of China. And if so, what does it look like? Where does it take place? How is it mopped up? because a lot of platforms in China allow lots of criticism and lots of discussion. So it's not just all shut down, it's about key sensitivity points around individuals and the types of criticism that get mopped up and are considered to be a threat. So letting some steam out of the system exists because otherwise it all builds up and becomes too much. But all these states, and particularly the ones we met, you know, you mentioned Erdogan through the whole way through, including into places like the Philippines and Indonesia, are really about providing stability at all costs. So what one could make the argument that that's what all governments should be trying to do, mm. trying to be stable, trying to be meritocratic, and not preserve elites. And you know, I think that we're, 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 we're definitely lost in the woods here about how we should not just respond to what other people are doing, but to work out how we should also do that ourselves. You know, the inequality in this country and in the US is, is profound. But you know, in, I remember in the Silk Roads when you were talking about you know, American British policy in Iran and you know, the Arab world, you, were sort of, you said like, but there's such, you know, the, the, the switches of these policies all are so inconsistent, you know, the change of government. But that goes with democracy, doesn't it? I mean, it means that like, it's very, it's very easy to have a consistent foreign policy if you're Putin or Erdogan or the supreme leader of Iran. It's a lot harder if you're switching every four years in an incredibly unstable democratic system. Yeah, but, you're, but, you're, but ironically, the, the key element of democracy is it provides stability because you can you can handle bumps much more easily. So yeah. autocratic regimes are extremely brittle under pressure, and those pressures happen with pandemics typically, not just with this one, but over history. That autocracies are brittle when it comes to climatic events, and they're brittle with any kind of military and foreign pressure because the sudden knee-jerk reaction is that no one wants to make decisions because they're worried about their own position, and number one always decides. So the decision-making process gets slowed down. People in Wuhan don't tell what, Beijing what's really happening. People in Beijing try and bluff it out, and that then gets stopped. And by the next thing you know, what could have been contained, at least within um, Henan province, possibly in Wuhan, within Wuhan itself, becomes a global problem. So autocracies and, and totalitarian regimes, again, as you know from Stalin, are, are very stable. You can sacrifice the economy, you can sacrifice literally people's lives for political ideology but they're extremely brittle. So the Soviet Union collapsed more or less overnight. You know, the Eastern mm. Bloc, the, Soviet, you know, the, the, the Berlin Wall, likewise, the CIA analysis completely missed that. So yeah. democracies are very resilient because we allow and we force people to accept when they've got things wrong and then we 
don't always learn from the mistakes, but we're, we try and be transparent. We don't, don't always do that as well as we could do, but that is the single best thing about the democracy is that when shit hits the fan, excuse my language, there's a kind of process of investigation to work out how that was allowed to happen. And then, then we repeat the same mistake a few times. I mean, a couple, a couple of things. How brittle is China now? How brittle is the leadership in China now? And, and secondly, you mentioned um, the pandemic, obviously. Um, which you predicted something like this about five years before, didn't you? But, no, 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 December, yeah. in December before. December, yeah. December before. So how brittle is Chinese leadership and how dangerous is that? But secondly, obviously they didn't handle the beginning of the pandemic p perfectly, but are they going to benefit massively from it down the road in the future? Are they going to be the great winners from this? Uh, so anybody who tells you that they, they can give you any authority, you know, any view on Chinese leadership is lying because... Um, you no just, one knows anything. You, you don't, there's no eyes, no ears inside the Politburo. So um, it's all speculation. And, you know, as everything with, uh, with academics or with history, some people's judgment is going to be better than others. Um, but the knowledge is, is it's, it's, you're shooting in the blind. So it can be highly, highly speculative and almost not worth guessing. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, well, they did, but well, they already have done better. Chinese, China's economy, China's exports last year went up by 19%. So China's balanced payments, its foreign reserves have, have boomed and soared. And um, so from that point of view, it's been a boom to the extent that it's overheated China's economy. So there's an energy crisis. Energy consumption has gone up. Manufacturing has gone up to respond to not just PPE, but everyone sitting at home have been buying sofas. So the, the single largest item of volume of, of goods traded across from China to the United States last year was sofas and furniture. Mm. Because people are saying, well, I've got another six months locked in yeah. watching Netflix. I'm going to upgrade my, my, my sofa. <laughs> and, and the price to pay for everyone upgrading their laptops and all the soft stuff that we've all been doing because the government's been paying us to sit at home has meant that Chinese manufacturing has boomed mm. and that's good for the economy but the energy to keep the factories open has gone nuts so energy consumption has risen to the point that China this week as we go into COP26 are paying energy companies to open coal power fuel plants to try to meet ironically our demands right, right. It's partly, some of it is to do with Chinese domestic consumption it's been a hot summer and it was hot summer what's, what's Chinese condom production telling us um, over the pandemic because I know you I know you're an expert on the condom statistics well, yeah. in China as a Catholic it's a it's a one of my top topics yes yeah. yes uh, so, so condom it's all to do well actually Steve it's a very smart question asking about fertility levels and population sizes and uh, China has, has as everybody will know, you know, quite early talking about China, people talk about the demographic, the pyramid. There are too many people getting older and not enough young people being born. Uh, that's partly a product of sort of badly thought through policies of one child policy that was loosened a couple of years ago to a two child policy has now been loosened to a three child policy to try to encourage yeah. more Chinese people to have kids. So the Chinese are now quite anti-condom right. because they want people to have children and have done that in a kind of joint, we would call it joined out government, by saying, why are people not having children? And the single thing that you'll hear from, they don't really do focus groups in China, but that it's bloody expensive. And if I've got kids, I've got to send them to after school clubs. They have little tutors to help them get into the best universities. And you know, I told, tell, tell my, my, my own children, um, when you apply to Oxbridge, there are about 20,000 applications for 3,000 places. You know, 
tricky odds and lots of concern about are you discriminated against because you know this or that or whatever and we you know we say we try and do the best we can we try and use a lot of contextual data we try and do it as that merit and it's always going to be hard and lots of fantastic kids don't get lucky enough to get in and you know they'll they'll come through anyway in china for 3000 places at tsinghua there are 9.2 million applicants so the pressure to get your yeah. kids on that conveyor belt so the chinese government this summer said we are banning any form of after club, after school club. We're banning private tutoring. We're banning any form of um, non-state learning and curriculum. We're going to try and level up. We're going to try and stop it so that if you've got a competitive advantage, uh, because that will, we think will make it easier to have children. My, my own view for what it's worth is that if you want to stop people uh, having children, um, or if you want to encourage people to have children, lay on a bit of free alcohol and some good music on a Friday night. And, <laughs> and that would probably be more effective than telling them that it's good, you don't worry about the cost when an 11 year old wants to buy a pony. But, um, but maybe I'm old fashioned. So, you know, the, but the, the Chinese, what they're trying to do is to say, we, we, we recognize there's a demographic blip. Some of the projections by, by 2060 put China's population at 700 million, so almost halving where things are now. And that, that, that solves some problems. Mm energy, um, protein consumption, food, but it, it, we're being listened to, yeah. uh, but it creates other ones. Yeah. So, so it's trying to stay ahead of some of those mega trends. And, and, you know, and I do think it's, it's you know, slightly banging the same drum again. I think here in, in Britain and the Western economies, and it's not just because we're democracies, it's that we, we don't plan. Mm. You know, partly because with, with Brexit, we didn't know from one week to the next, were we going to leave? Are we going to leave on this date or that date? What's going to happen with the fish? Can you sell sausages in Northern Ireland? But so it's really important to have those kind of discussions. Like I said, I'm, I'm involved in some about yeah. what, what is it, what is the UK, what's the world in the UK going to look like in 2050, assuming no wars and nuclear disasters? And what would, what would we need as a set of strategic resources, skills, and how do you plan ahead and try to at least have some sort of um, plan, which we, we, it's very conspicuous that that just hasn't been thought through. It's like we've been on a boat without anybody on the bridge. Yeah. For, for 30 years, no one's steering, and now suddenly we're in the middle of a storm and we're trying to mobilize. But these are the sort of, these are the problems with, with liberal democracy, aren't they, in a sense? Because, like, I mean, you, you know, you, you have this flexibility when the government changes and, you know, so on. But the problem is that planning is very short term. And that, that's a sort of inbuilt problem, with yeah. it, don't you think? If you, be, if you I suppose, take a historian's view, you know, we all think back and go, oh, well, wasn't Thatcherism and mm. whatever. But the, 1920, the, the, the 20th century, from a British perspective, was one catastrophic decision after another. You know, empire gone, that was, you know, part of the cost of the war and legacy. But Suez, Iran, you know, what was it that the Foreign Office got right in the 20th century? You know, what was it that the economists got right, apart from freeing up markets, privatizing utilities, we now realize that holy shit, that means that poor people in Britain have energy poverty because they can't pay for their gas bills yeah. over the course of sudden two-week surge in prices where our friend Mr. Putin decides to divert um, gas to not fill up his own tanks and send it towards China and to maybe think that there's a bit of political pressure to put on us. That, that, that privatization that made a lot of people rich suddenly turns out that there's a, da there's a downside to it. And, and so we've got lots and lots of things wrong. And I think that they're kind of the call sheet of how do we prepare for you know, and add foreign policy, add Afghanistan, add Iraq, through to education, through to the, you know, the, there wasn't a kind of golden age where the British Empire worked seamlessly and worked on a pin and made good decisions. It's complicated to get things right. And um, it's much easier to get things wrong. And usually people get lots of things wrong, but it's, it's what you learn from it, and ideally not to repeat those same mistakes. Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you two kind of, two kind of basic questions 
which ha could have half-hour answers, but basically, short, yeah. but basically, what does China want? I mean, is the Belt and Road policy a better way of empire building or spreading influence than the traditional empires that we all read? You know, we we we, we, show, we, we showed in the 19th century. Is it a better way? What do they want? Do you well, think? it's a better way because they're not enslaving people. Yeah, they're not putting people in shackles and shipping them across and they the Atlantic. They don't have, and nor do they have soldiers there. They don't need boots so on the ground yet. It's not a, it's, it's 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 not a colonization, but it, it presents threats. But exactly which threats, where, to whom, and why? All of those you need to look at individual countries, individual projects, and I think requires you know a proper detailed answer. So I mean, it's it's like most things in life. There's the kind of the smart ass couple of sentences. There's a kind of two-page executive summary, and then there's proper work that goes on around it. And and part of the problem is, is that we're rattled by China, and it's it, for lots of very good reasons. But it means that what we want is is China good or is it bad? And that maybe is not the most helpful way to be looking at the Belt and Road. For, for you know, just for what it's worth. All it does is it provides a narrative. You know, it's, been, it's quite a clever bit like the title of my book, which I owe my wife, by the way, endless cups of coffee and champagne for helping come up with. Um, you know, we were sitting around thinking, how do I, how do I write, is, is the Silk Roads on its own a name that will work? And, and actually saying it's a new history of the world is really important to show that it's about these connections. It's not just about you know, great buildings in Samarkand and people think, God, I'd love to go there one day. And can you recommend somewhere to stay? Which well, is what is people part, used to. Well, it is partly that too. It's partly that, but, it, yeah. but it's those, those connections. I think, I think that, that that sort of the, the story that China's trying to tell is to say, in the past, the West enslaved, that's part of the subtext. We, on the other hand, sent caravans of camels and we're only here to trade. We don't care what faiths you have. We don't care what you look like. We won't treat you the same way as your colonizers and or former colonizers. And that's quite a powerful message mm. when they turn up. And so a friend of mine who's a finance minister in one of the states in West Africa, uh, I was talking to him in, in um, or exchanging emails with him over lockdown. And he said, look, I'm fed up with people from the State Department and the Foreign Office turning up or ringing me and saying, stop taking funding from China. Because my first question is, Will you fund our hospitals and schools and you know new port facilities? And they say, well, we haven't got. I'm so sorry, we don't have the cash. Mm. And then when furlough happened, and Rishi Sunak, basically over the course of an afternoon, yeah. said, we're going to put people on furlough for the next year, take on 300, 300 billion pounds worth, maybe 400 billion pounds worth of debt. And he said, so you do have the money magically to pay people to sit at home. So either stop telling us what to do in a kind of colonial way. Don't trust the Chinese; they'll indebt you. Will you put your money where your mouth is, or stop telling us? how to run our own country and also presupposes that we're stupid and that we in Africa are not, not able to make decisions because we're taken in by the Chinese checkbook. And so I think that we, we have failed to engage with other parts of the world and these massive populations, these massive resources that we should be allocating uh, and we oversimplify. So in a lot of those cases, you know, there's been chat for the last five years about how the United States is going to build a Belt and Road and a Blue Dot Network. Now it's called the Build Back Better Network. Mm. And there's lots of manuals and documents that get produced, but it's always about cash. Are you willing to put money into upgrading other parts of the world? And can you do that in a way that is selective and in, is beneficial? You know, why would you put more money into, for example, West Africa? But you know, the Obama administration gutted USAID to the continent of Africa as a whole, that Bush had been, ironically, been quite good on. Mm. Trump collapsed that even more. And so we have these kind of isolation states that provide vacuums that when the Chinese arrive in Kazakhstan or in Malaysia and say, we'll build stuff, we'll help fund it, you work out whether you want it and whether you'll pay for some or all of it, um, they're the only show in town. And I think we should probably think through 
is that a bad thing? And if so, why? And what are we going to do about it above all? Thank you very much for coming today. And Peter, thanks. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.